0: Good to see you guys. Why don't you open up your Bibles real quick to the uh, gospel, I'm sorry, uh, the book of Acts where we're at today is going to be Acts chapter 2, and I'll tell you a little briefly uh, what we're going to be looking at here today. Um, Two weeks ago, we started kind of a brand new series. It'll just be a short, brief, eight-week series that we'll be taking a look at. We're calling it The Signs of Life. In short, what it is, is when God... Does something when God changes people's lives, when God shows up, when wherever God comes, there's always traces or evidence um, that God was there. Um, The very first week, we looked at sort of the reality of the greatest sign that God has left for us to identify the fact that He has not abandoned this world to sin, to brokenness, to destruction, uh, and that He's not abandoned you to your own sin and your own dysfunctionality and your own brokenness and your own destruction. Uh, but by great love and grace that God has actually chosen to do something about the brokenness that we have in this world, but also in our lives. That the first week we saw was the fact that God came into this world. We call that the incarnation. God became man. It's the greatest, if I can put it this way, objective sign that God has demonstrated, meaning it happened, it's just fact, it took place. The next few signs we'll be taking a look at, we'll describe as sort of subjective signs. They should be happening in our lives, personally, uh, some of us, they might be to more degrees than others, other lives, but the reality is is that when God does something, when God shows up in our lives and we're changed, uh, we claim that we have met Jesus or we're saved, however type of Christian ease that you want to use to describe that, um, the reality is that there will be signs or evidences that God has begun something and has started something in your life. So we saw last week uh, that one of the greatest evidences of this is that transformation. God begins to transform us. And we saw last week that what God is really concerned about is not so much that we just do stuff. See, a lot of times Christianity sort of emphasizes or focuses what we do. We've got to go and preach Jesus, or we've got to read our Bibles, or we've got to journal, or we've got to do something. And yet, all that stuff is important. But what God cares about more than us doing something is what He cares about is how we do it or why we do it. In other words, what motivates us, what drives us. Because, for example, You could give large sums of money, but in reality, your heart's full of anger or bitterness or you don't really have love or forgiveness in your heart towards other people. Is that gift of lots of money honoring to God? No, it's totally dishonoring to God. It doesn't make God any more happy. Um, But the reality is the same can be said for everything that we do. We can read our Bible with an attitude that's filled filled with hatred or anger or anger. Or unforgiveness towards other people. Or we can show up to church and in reality be in the community of other saints and other believers. And yet we have bitterness in our hearts towards some of these other people. And just because we do certain things doesn't mean that it brings God any type of honor or glory. So we saw that God wants to transform us. What I want to begin to take a look at here today is really the subject matter of community. And what happens, in other words, when God does something in our lives and changes us or transforms us or does a work in our lives, one of the signs or the evidence is that God has begun to do that is we begin to view community or family differently. Now, when I say family, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, family, how you raise your kids and so on and so forth. I'll actually deal more with that uh, at that parents basic training. But um, I'm leaning more in terms of looking at the subject matter or the idea of community. How do we do life together? How do we interact with other people? How do we relate and respond to other people? People in the church, people that maybe aren't Christians, people that maybe are Christians, but they're way younger than us because you're know you're 40 plus and you're surrounded by a bunch of young people and how do you view young people? Or if you're young and you may be surrounded by a handful of older people, how do you view those older people? Or if you're really... Uh, filthy poor, right? How do you view the filthy rich? Or are you really rich? How do you look at the filthy poor? I mean, how do you interact with people? If you have brown skin, how do you look at whiteies, All right, if you have got red skin, how do you view black people? How do you live and how do you function in community? Because the reality is, is that when Jesus changes us, there's evidences or traces or signs that he has done something. Signs of life. So that's hopefully setting the stage of what we'll be taking a look at, Uh, I'm going to pray. We'll read the passage out of the book of uh, Acts in just a second here, but I want to pray, and then we'll get to work reading that, and then we'll begin to make some comments and statements about this, and hopefully that'll make some sense to you guys. So uh, join me as we pray, and then we'll read. God, we ask for your help right now. We need it, Uh, because God, at the end of the day for us, um, it's easy for us to sit here in a room. Uh, to have our minds enlightened by some truth. And it's possible for us to hear a song and have some emotions or sentimentality going on inside of us. It's even possible for us to drop a little money in a little weird basket. And yet at the end of the day our hearts are filled with anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. Maybe we may be poor, but we look at people who are rich and we hate them. Maybe we're rich, we look at people who are poor and we despise them, being lazy. But we're not really changed. And God, we want to be a people that are changed. We want to be a people that the gospel doesn't just simply shine on us. We want to be a group of people that the gospel penetrates us to the very core of who we are. So in order for that to happen, God, we need your Holy Spirit to move and work in our hearts and bring about this transformation that we need. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter or verse 47. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have some in the back. Please feel free to grab one. Keep it. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. Or, I've said this before, uh, if you're looking for a really nice leather-bound Bible, uh, we have a huge, growing, booming uh, Lost and Found. Pick up a journal there while you're at it, too. I'm absolutely not kidding. I'm totally serious. Uh, we have a huge uh, lost and found. We need to get rid of those things. So if you want a Bible or you want to give it to your mom, we've got lots of ones. You can re-gift them. 242 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonderful signs were being done through the apostles'. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they were attending together in the temple, breaking bread together in their homes, and they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And then the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." So what we see here in the early church is kind of the passage that oftentimes gets uh, brought up whenever people are sort of um, thinking about sort of uh, with a sense of euphoria and excitement, nostalgia as to what the church was like and dreaming of this thought of like, ah, it's too sad. The church today in today's world is nothing like that so far. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of truth to that, that in a lot of ways, yeah, the church has kind of drifted from that, and church can oftentimes, for a lot of people, the experience can be nothing more than just showing up for an hour, hour and a half, or whatever, on a Sunday morning, being asked to give money, being asked to give their time, but they just don't, and whatnot, and it can be a very lonely and isolating type of experience, but the reality is, is that when you read a passage like this, what you find is you find a group of people that have met Jesus, been transformed by Jesus, and as they gather together, they're eating dinner with each other. They're uh, breaking bread is what it describes. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, they're hearing the word of God spoken as it describes that they were uh, having the apostles doctrine communicated to them. It's one of the reasons why for us as a church, you know, we encourage people to have meals with one another. We have communion every single week that made, that's made available for you as individuals to take or if you're in a family uh, if you're a dad, for you to lead your kids and your wife in communion, we oftentimes encourage you as dads, maybe when we do uh, worship and we start doing communion, which uh, we, we have in the back three areas, we encourage you to go get your families, bring your families in here, partake of communion with them, lead your wife and your kids. Uh, it says that they had the apostles' doctrine, so they taught and studied God's words. one of the reasons why we as a church, we spend time digging into the Bible As we gather, we study the Bible. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times our community groups, we'll talk more about that in a second, actually are based upon discussions of the content that we study on Sunday morning to help you dig deeper into the Scripture and to wrestle further with the implications of what the Bible teaches. us. And so it goes on to say it, and they fellowship with each other. So what we see here in this group of people is that as they gather together, and as needs had kind of come up and had arisen, people were dealing with those needs, and they were taking care of each other. And again, like I said, it's easy for us oftentimes to look at this with sort of a nostalgia and be like, ah, wouldn't it be awesome if the church was like that today? And in reality, in a lot of places, I think maybe the church doesn't function like that, but at the same time, there are pockets where the church does function like this. I can give you examples of our own church, where I've seen this happen a lot. Um, I was just reminded recently, about a year ago, uh, for example, uh, a gal had gotten into uh, almost near-fatal accident, was... Uh, in a coma for quite a while. And the people in her community group actually started kind of a fundraising effort to raise a lot of money to help pay for the bills and help provide food and snacks. And so here in the book of Acts, you see a group of people coming together saying, I can't make rent this month. And someone else in the group is like, hey, let's figure out a way to make money for you. We want to help you out. We want to support you, love you, serve you, take care of you, do whatever we can. And what you find in the early church is people really taking care of each other's needs. We see the same thing here all the time. In community groups, people come, even sometimes that are sick. They ask for prayer. Sometimes we've even seen God heal them. So we see these things happen, but the reality is oftentimes the experience that most people submit themselves to, meaning they just go to Sunday mornings and they just simply keep an arm's length distance from other people, you're right, they probably don't see this type of stuff that happens in the book of Acts. They may not be aware of that type of stuff. And a lot of times it's because either A, the church that maybe they're part of isn't doing that. There's just not happening. Uh, churches like in the book of Revelation, some of them, some of them can be dead. Or sometimes they are happening, but we as individuals kind of have succumbed to sort of the uh, the gods of our age, which is a heightened individualism, we, in other words, value or worship or love our own independence more than we value and worship and love God and his mission. And so what happens is we lose out, we miss out on the life that God really wants to bring us into, the evidences, the signs of life that God wants to bring us into. So what we'll be taking a look at here today is really subject matter of community, subject of community. And so what we see first of all here, uh, I want to really kind of talk about two specific things. Today, first of all, we'll take a look at community in a sense of uh, being biblically, but also redemptively. In other words, there's a storyline to biblical community. But then secondly, we'll take a look at community practically and strategically. And those will be the two main specific things that we'll really take a look at, okay? So the first thing I really want to try to unpack and understand a little bit is community, biblically and redemptively. So what we see, first of all, is that in Acts 2.42... Through 47, that these people who gather together, they actually devoted themselves to the apostles doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, uniting with each other, and as a result of that, because they knew what was going on in each other's lives, they were able to help and take care of each other, but they devoted themselves. It's really a word which basically be also translated in the New Testament, here's a couple of different ways, the word attend, or attended, uh, the word was, or were constant, or continued, these are other different types of words that can be used to describe the same Greek word that's used for devoted. In other words, it's a very strong, intentional uh, function which these people were participating in. In other words, all of them in the early church are part of this Acts 2:42 to 47 scenario. All of them had really intentionally given themselves. Um, it's not like the way some of us can maybe interact with some people. If you've ever been in a conversation with somebody, you might be talking with someone, looking at their eyes, and yet they, they got their cell phone in their hand, they're texting, right? Or someone else comes walking up in the conversation, and they say hi, and they're looking over there saying hi to them, and looking over there saying hi to them, but not really engaged. In other words, they're not really devoted. The people here were totally devoted to what was going on. One of the words that's also used there is that they were devoted to fellowship. The word fellowship also means Koinonia, it's a Greek word, koinonia. It basically has this idea of commonality, unity, something that unites them. Now, this does not mean, don't mistake, unity for uniformity. Cults engage in uniformity. Everybody uses the same translation of the Bible. Everybody listens to the only same teacher. Everybody wears matching t-shirts. Everybody buys the same bumper stickers. Everybody does the same stuff. There's no allowance of any type of variety. That's uniformity. Unity means, in the biblical sense, that you can have people that oftentimes may have radically different personalities, radically different ways of viewing certain things, and yet they unite, they come together because of a commonality. In this case, what united them was the commonality of Jesus. In other words, what you find here that just basically took place in the book of Acts, you've got different people from different social economic levels, different people from different Uh, places on the planet, Um, people from Alexandria, people from Crete, people from Europe, is what basically is described here. In other words, each one of these people, even though they may have been Jews, first and foremost, each one of them brought with them into Jerusalem all the different variations of culture. So can you imagine getting all these different people together with all these radically different cultural ways of viewing life, coming together, uniting, Praying, loving, serving, taking up offerings to take care of one another because of Jesus. This this is a beautiful thing that Jesus does. It unites people. unites people. Even people that may or may not have been selected to be our own personal friends. Have you ever experienced this? I'll give you an example. I'll tell you a little bit more about this later. But one of the very first things I did as a young Christian is I got involved in a small group. And in this small group was a guy by the name of John Wang not Wayne, Wang. Uh, he was Korean. And John Wing. he was two years younger than me. We had absolutely nothing, nothing, and I, I mean nothing in common at all. Um, John Wang, like I said, was two years younger than me. Um, I was probably, I don't know, I think it was a sophomore. And you know, sophomores just don't hang out with freshman or whatever, you know, or maybe it was junior or something like that then, I don't remember. Um, but the point of the matter is, is I grew up in Huntington Beach, and, and so I, in high school, got involved with the surf guys. And if you know anything about, like, surf culture on high school campuses, is that you basically have surf people, and then everybody else gets lumped into one big, giant, enormous category, all right? It doesn't matter if they're, like, jocks or wrestlers or whatever. I mean, they just, they, you know, they just all get lumped into one big category. And and so for me, I would have never selected John to be my friend. I would have never like, seen him on campus and be like, that guy is going to be my buddy. At all. But, show up at a Bible study, get together, start interacting with this guy because he's sitting right next to me, come to find out, he's kind of a cool guy. Like he's, he's challenging me, he's encouraging me, he loves Jesus. And it wasn't until years later I began to realize that what brought him and I together as friends was only Jesus. Because we, neither one of us, I don't think, I mean, he probably would have said the same thing. I would have never selected Brian to be my friend. But the point of the matter is, this is what the gospel does, is it brings together people that normally would have never been brought together. So what you have in the early first church is you have slave owners. Now, you can't think of slavery in terms of deep south type slavery. Think of it more in terms of like a, 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 um, an owner, like a guy that was like, say, a boss, and he, he bought his employees. So you'd have owners, and then you'd have slaves. Think of it this way. You'd have, like, the CEO of your company, and then you'd have you who, like, run the front line at the cash register, all right? And you would be sitting together in the same group, worshiping the same God. You would have people that were basically uh, totally opposite of one another in terms of culture, different skin color, people that were very rich, hanging out with people that were very poor, who in the culture of this world, and even in today's culture, those two really don't mingle together, Right? I mean, that, in a lot of ways, is the basis of the whole Occupy movement, right? We have an enemy, idea is, and they're called the rich people. So we got to somehow stick it to the rich people because they're sticking it to us. But what you have in the church is rich people hanging with poor people, and they love each other. Poor people hang with rich people, and there's some level of respect and love that's going on between the two of them. What you have in the gospel, in the early church, is the breaking down of all these middle partition walls because of Jesus. This is an important thing for us to understand, even for us as a church, because you might have people that are older and younger, just like us, very wide range of people older, 40 and above, me, and then younger, like 25 and below. And we have a whole bunch of people in between, but here's my point. It's very easy to look at certain ages of people and begin to get frustrated, because they're not like you. But what I'm trying to say to you is that if the gospel has had an impact upon your life, one of the number one signs or evidences that God has begun to do something in your life is you've thought differently about how you view people. You don't just simply categorize them. You know how we do that? If You walked into a room, you just size people up, you're like, okay, that dude spends a lot of time playing video games. All right, that dude, no doubt, never works out, or that person doesn't comb his hair, that person spends way too much time on his hair, you can you can easily size somebody up very quickly, right? The way some of you probably size me up. Like, that guy is lame. And the point of the matter is, is it's easy for us to do that. But what I'm saying is that in the gospel, what Jesus does is he changes the way that we view other people, and that changes the way that we view relationships with other people in what the Bible describes as the church. So with that being said, I want to begin to take a look at how this begins to work out. So the two things I want to begin to take a look at, first of all, in terms of community, biblically and redemptively, first of all, God as a divine community and family. In other words, the big theological word for this is that God is Trinitarian in his nature. Right? What that means is that God is one God, and yet God has been pleased to reveal himself three distinct persons we see this as the father son and the holy spirit but what we see in the trinity is we see a community a family if you would of love Uh, i'll read you a passage out of the book of uh john chapter 17 it's a great long prayer this is sort of a snapshot of it encourage you on your own time to maybe read it and one of the amazing pictures uh, that jesus gives to us of the relationship that he has intimately with with the father Okay, so here's what Jesus says, the glory that you have given to me, he's talking to his father, "uh, that you've given to me, I have given to them. So whatever this weightiness, glory, it's kind of this idea of heaviness, weightiness. Jesus says, I've been with the father and it hasn't been shallow, it's been weighty, substantial. He says, what I've had with you and the father, I want them to have. This is amazing, I spent a lot of time on that, but I'm not. He says, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So, in this very brief passage, what we see here with Jesus is describing the type of relationship he has with his Father. It's deep, it's love, it's personal, it's intimate, it's protective. There's a sense within this relationship where it's incredibly substantial. If, any, if you're married today, or you want to be married, you know, at the heart or the core of any type of marriage or desire to be married is to engage into a substantial relationship. In other words, substance. Nobody wants a shallow relationship. Nobody wants to get involved into some relationship where it's like, you know what, how about this? I'll give you 50% of my heart if you give me 60% of your heart, and we'll just call it good. Nobody wants that. And if you get into that relationship like that, or you find yourself in that type of a circumstance and you find that you're maybe given 60% of yourself, maybe not all, but they're only given 40, it's painful, it's frustrating, it's hurtful, and at some point it will break apart. But that's not what we see with Jesus. Jesus is in relationship with his Father, and it's full of substance, it's powerful. Jesus describes it as glory. So what we see in the Trinity is love. We see God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, interacting, working, moving, Some have even described it as dancing. Think of a dance as being choreographed. There's movement. There's oscillation. There's beauty to it. And this is what we see with God. That there's a sense of beauty and symmetry and love in the Godhead. Another thing that you find within the Godhead is that you find that there's no no fear. Jesus is not afraid of the Father. And the reason why there's no fear is because there's no lies. There's, there's no anything in terms of that, way that would even hint at being unprotected or a need to be afraid or need to be scared. There's nothing but full, complete exposure and acceptance, meaning there's no secrets in the Trinity. There's nothing but love. Think about one of the reasons why oftentimes our relationships are so shallow or broken. is because somebody in the relationship is refusing to be transparent, Right? Deadly silent in here. I'm assuming that's correct. All right. My point that I want to make is this, is that when somebody's in a relationship and there's not transparency, it's very painful because you don't know whether to trust them or to be suspicious of them or you got to watch your back. You don't know if you need to protect yourself. You don't know if you need to just simply trash the whole thing and get out for self-preservation. Not so with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit are in love with each other, are overflowing with love for one another. And there's peace. In fact, to use the Hebrew word, there's shalom. It's the one thing all of us desire. Any of us, when we enter into a relationship, the one thing that we all hope for, long for, desire is to have some level of peace where we can just simply be at rest, be at home, rest our head upon the other person's chest and just know everything is going to be okay. That's what God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all have and have always had throughout all eternity. So the first thing we see, beginning with that, is we see that it's rooted really in God. God is this divine community and family. The second thing that we see is that God created human community and family, that God created it, that this whole thing that we describe as community or family, it's something that was actually birthed in God. It started from God, but God has a reason for this. So God created human community, and as I put in parentheses here, to reflect him On earth as it is in heaven. You need to know this. That the reason for all human community and all human family is to be something that reflects and images God back to this earth. Back to those in this world that are broken or dysfunctional. That's God's intention. So that when people look at the way that we do community, the way that we relate, the way that we interact with other people, that something about the way that we do it speaks the gospel. Like, oh my gosh. Look, at rich people are loving s- insanely poor people. And black people are loving brown people. And bosses are hanging out with their lame, you know, minimum wage employees. And they're loving them. Rich, old people in their 40s are actually hanging out with 22-year-old kids. It's shocking. It doesn't happen anywhere. But if all the world sees... Is this attitude, even if we call ourselves a Christian, that says, I only hang out with people that are just like me, that does not speak or reflect or image God's intention. And therefore, it breaks apart. It breaks apart. Families are God's way of basically creating something that would provide his shalom, his peace. And so when I added that little parenthetical statement that, this was God's way to reflect Him on earth as it is in heaven. So, God, celestial, God, intangible, God, spirit, God created humanity with physicality, with body, with flesh, with content on a planet, on planet earth. And so, that as God created us, that as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, overflow in love and affection and kindness and protection. And shalom amongst themselves. That God's original design was to then have that very same picture reflected in the natural realm. How are we doing as a race? Not too great. Not too great. Things are broken, right? And see, here's what's happened. It's because what's taken place from the very beginning, when mankind, God created Adam to be sort of the forerunner, the first person of this race. Obviously, what had happened was when he made a decision that, in essence... Box got out, clipped God out of the deal, and says, Not interested in doing things your way, I'm gonna do things my way. God says, Don't eat the treat. Adam's like, mm, I voted and I decided I'll eat the treat. And God says, Don't do that. That's not what leads to life. What leads to life is obedience to me. What leads to shalom, what leads to peace is honoring me, trusting me, following me, loving me. Adam says, No, I'll do it my way. So here's what's happened in all relationships, When somebody takes sort of the self-centered role, is that a good relationship or a dysfunctional relationship? Dysfunctional. It's broken. It can't function. It can't work. It doesn't work. Some people put up with it for some length of time, but at some point it's doomed for failure because relationships, community, family is something that God created himself. And when you take something that was created or designed by God to function in a particular way, and you say, I want it to function for this particular purpose, then what you're basically doing would be the same thing if you've got a brand new car, and none of you guys ever read like the owner's manual, but let's just hypothetically say you did read the owner's manual, and it said, only put premium gas in this car. If you're like, forget that, gas is like five bucks a gallon. I'm going to put chocolate milk in there, it's cheaper. You will break your car. doesn't matter how good your intentions are. It doesn't matter what your desire is. You're like, it doesn't matter if you're just like skipping on money. You're like, I want to save money. I'm going to be frugal. You're being foolish is what you're doing and you will break the very thing for the means by which it was intended to operate. And we do that on a very practical level, when we take relationship that God says it's intended to reflect and image and mirror my shalom throughout this earth, the way people can function and flourish and happen and work together, and then when we say, no, I don't want it to work that way, when we say things like, no, 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 I will have vengeance upon whom I want to have vengeance. I refuse to forgive certain people God says I want you to forgive. Not only do we not image God or reflect God on this planet by showing shalom or bringing peace to this earth. But we also see a disintegration in our own heart. We break. And we end up breaking other people. I've said it this way before. Hurt people hurt people. And what God has in store is a renewal of all all this, a restoration of all this. And this is exactly what we see god intending to do so throughout history we see god originally created adam to adam to fill the earth to multiply the earth to have dominion over all the earth so god's original design for adam was to be fruitful multiply lots of babies right spread eden which sort of was a template all around the whole planet so Whatever planet Earth was back then when God created Adam, who knows, uh, down all the way to Africa, all the way to Siberia, whatever, God's whole point was basically to take the earth, cultivate it, have lots of babies, and those babies that you have, let them have babies. But as they are a family of people that love, honor, respect, worship, adore me above all other things, all other choices, all their decisions, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But that's not what happened, right? So what takes place then is that God has a plan already devised from the foundation of the earth to basically bring about restoration. So God, for example, goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, here's the deal. I want you to have a family. I'm going to bless you. So what does God do? He stacks the odds against himself. He goes to a really, really old man and a really old and retired woman and says, I'm going to bring life into your deadness, and you'll have children. You'll have a family, and your family will be blessed so why does God bless Abraham? To be a blessing. Why does God bless any of us? To be a blessing. What happens if we receive unbelievable blessing and yet we hoard the blessing, we store the blessing, we protect the blessing of our lives. So you got a lot of money, you're like, I'm gonna protect the money, put it in accounts, security, because that's safe. Banks are safe. Everybody knows that. You're like, uh yeah. Okay. Um, investments, I'll invest my money, because everyone knows that's safe. Buy houses. Yeah. Okay, the point of the matter is what happens if you take the stuff, the blessings that God gives you and you hoard it? Not only will you not be blessed, others will not be blessed through you. And yet God's intention for Abraham was, I want to bless you to be a blessing to the whole earth. This is what we begin to see that God does through Abraham. So with that being said, is we see this dysfunctionality, this sinfulness, this brokenness begin to take place upon the planet And yet what we see in the book of Acts is something very interesting. Because in the book of Acts, we just read, it comes on the heels of uh, the Holy Spirit coming down. And what happens is, you know, the situation some of you are probably familiar with. uh, The people begin to speak in tongues, so on and so forth. And God begins to draw all these nations, all these people together. People of different language, people of different social economic statuses, people of different skin color, people of different cultures. uh, People of all, you know ranges of life are coming together and what's happened is that they're speaking one language. Which is shocking because Luke's really knowledgeable of the Bible and what I think Luke's doing and I think what God's doing through Luke writing this for us is that this is very similar to another account in the Bible that took place many, many years ago that actually had the exact opposite effect. Does anybody remember what it is? At the Tower of Babel. All these people came together they're like, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to disobey God. We're going to make our own little thing. And God says, no, you're not, because you're not doing what I asked you to do. I told you to go populate the whole earth. I blessed you to be a blessing, to be a blessing to other people. Instead, you guys have sought to hoard your blessings. You guys have sought to do this thing your own way. So I will change your languages, and your languages then will resort or, revert or, or, or result in you guys being scattered. And what you see in Acts is a reversal of Babylon. See reversal, God undoes Babel. It says Babel divided, separated, pushed out, sent out, created all sorts of uh, chaotic actions between and hostile actions between different nations, and different people groups, and different skin colors and different social economic groups. And what Jesus is saying through the Book of Acts is that. What he's done through his new work, his redemptive work, is he's taken all these people that were once scattered, and he's bringing them back together. This is what the gospel does. Brings together in a whole new family, a whole new work. The second thing I want to begin to really kind of take a look at and finish up on is here's this idea of community in terms of practicality or practically and strategically. So what I want to begin to really try to understand with regard to this uh, first of all, is that biblical community forms the context of love. So the first thing we'll take a look at is biblical community forms the context of love. i I got to, gotta first of all, be really quick and to, to clarify what I mean by love. Um, I realize in a lot of ways love in our culture um, has a different perspective or we think of love in a different way in which the Bible thinks of love. Oftentimes the way we think of love is we think of love in terms of feeling or sentimentality. And that's powerful. It's a good feeling, right? Um, I just did a wedding for a couple yesterday. They're on a stage, and and I says, I think you guys feel something right now. You probably feel really good, right? They're like, yes. I says, that's not necessarily love. That's sentimentality. That's an emotion. It's awesome. Uh, 36 hours from now, you actually may not have that. Uh, Be awesome if you still do, um, but the reality is at least maybe two weeks from now, it'll be gone. And what you'll find is that unless you learn how to adjust from that sentimentality into what biblical love is really all about, um, this is one of the reasons why oftentimes we become disillusioned. So here's my point. True love, the way the Bible describes it, especially here, is that love is not so much a feeling. We oftentimes say things like this. We're like, I'll love that person as long as I feel like they're lovely or lovable. Or as long as I feel like they give me something back or they acknowledge me or they accept me or they take me back. What you're really doing is you're not loving them. You, what, what's really happening is that you love the acceptance or the approval that you might get through them. So in other words, you're willing to do something for them as long as it's profitable for you. That's, that's really not love. True love, the way the Bible's going to describe it, is not sentimentality. It's a commitment. It's covenant. It's when we say, I will devote myself to you, to your betterment. To your blessing. That's what we see in marriages. That's what we see the type of love that God has for his people. This is the type of love that we see that begins to take place. So I want to suggest something to you. Is that biblical community actually forms the context by which this type of love actually happens. So let me try to put it to you this way. If you avoid biblical community. If you remain isolated or independent and if you don't allow others to be in your life, or if you don't personally or intentionally seek out being in the lives of other people, I want to pose a question to you. How is it possible for you to do what the Bible teaches you to do, to love, by isolating yourself? I want to suggest to you, you can't. In other words, you as a Christian will be stunted in your growth as a Christian as long as you remain isolated. Okay, does that make sense? I realize this may be offensive for some. This may be frustrating for some. I realize a lot of ways the temperature in American Christianity tends to be more along the lines of I want to have and hear something to me, be given to me that's going to make me feel good, something that will pick me up, make me feel good about myself, give me some tips on how to live through life a little bit happier and be better. But what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus oftentimes was deeply offensive. I don't want to be intentionally offensive, but what I want to suggest to you is that if, for example, you've chosen to come to the church, this is your family, this is your home, I want to suggest to you that God has more for you in your life, through your life, than for you to just simply come periodically off and on and just consume. Partake of a sermon here or there. Maybe come a couple weeks from now. Maybe hit up, you know, training once in a while. God has more for you. You're not growing the way that God wants you to grow. And as a result of that, you're not experiencing the richness of the blessings that God really wants to pour out into your life and through your life. In other words, if I can put it this way, the body of Christ is not as complete as it could be if you had joined the team and really devoted yourself to it does that make sense so on the one hand i want it to be very clear that if you isolate yourself or keep yourself from being in biblical community in the lives of other people there's no possible way for you to actually functionally live out the next slide some of the passages on the next slide that i want to read through real quickly here does that make sense so let's take a look at some of these verses a bunch of them on there i know it's kind of cluttered so i'll try to read through some of these hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 25 says this Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The point that he's making here is that there is a tendency, a temptation for us to avoid gathering together, for us to avoid. And I realize that all of us, you know, in this day and age, obviously, we can all basically say, I'm busy. We're all busy. We're all very busy. In fact, one of the things is, I think, with this age, one of the problems with this age is that we're oftentimes busy with trivial stuff. I mean, we're busy with stuff that really, in the long run, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, is not even gonna matter. I mean, think about some of the projects you actually might be investing yourself, your time, your energy into. Let's say you're doing some sort of big gardening project right now. Nothing wrong with gardening. I'm getting my garden prepared this next week. So I'm totally cool with gardening. But let's just say you invest all your time in gardening. You're like, I can't go to church, I can't go to Bible study. Can't invest in other people's lives. I don't have time. I'm so busy. A year from now, is your garden going to matter anything? Probably not. Five years from now, what's your garden going to matter to your life? Absolutely nothing. You're not going to be eating the fruit of your labors from five years previous. But what's happened is that you've completely isolated yourself. You've cut off yourself, become independent, fallen prey to the independence of this culture, And you've missed out on the rich blessings that God wants to pour in your life because we've devoted ourselves to trivial matters. So I don't want to in any way give the impression that things in our life don't matter. They do matter, but they matter in a prioritized sense. I believe that oftentimes many of the things that we devote ourselves to, that if we reprioritize these things, the reason why they're not prioritized the way they should be is because, look, at the end of the day, if I can try to put it this way, we've lost the sense of the awe of God. He just doesn't capture us anymore. This, in Acts 2.42, it says, "In awe came upon all who gathered there. In other words, they were captivated, blown away, mesmerized by the power and the love and the grace and the goodness and the beauty of God. And this kept them coming back again and again. They didn't want to miss it. They didn't want to lose out. They didn't want to somehow be on the outside. They didn't want to not be there they wanted to devote themselves to it because they were absolutely in awe of the greatness of god And i wouldn't suggest that one of the reasons why we can take it or leave it oftentimes the mentality of being in fellowship being a community is that we're bored we're just bored And I know that's kind of stunning and shocking and startling for some of us. We're like, no, I'm not bored. Look, if we can just be honest and admit, I'm bored. That actually becomes the first step to being changed. Because that leads to repentance. That leads to us being able to confess and admit that, God, I'm sorry. Become bored with you, with what you're doing in the midst of life all around me. God, forgive me for becoming bored with you. And that becomes the beginning, the birthing place, of radical transformation in your life. So in conclusion with this, what I really want to focus on in reading through some of these things is just how important it is for us in biblical community these things begin to take place. It becomes the context for these things to happen. John chapter 13, 34 says, love one another. We have to have another to love. If we're not in relationship with other people, we can't love. Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another. 12, 10. Give preference to one another. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another. Galatians 5, 13. Serve one another. Colossians 3, 13. Forgive one another. can't forgive people if we are constantly so easily offended by people. See, part of a consumer idea is that if somebody offends me in the slightest degree, in other words, if we have sort of this, this preconceived idea that I'm entitled to lots of really nice treatment, all right? So at least, you know, I'll, I'll be really honest with you. I can go to a restaurant and feel this way, all right? So don't judge me because you do the same thing. So I can walk into a restaurant and expect to be treated really well. And when I'm not expected, and when I'm not treated really well, when I ask a question, it's like, the board, right, whatever. I'm like, you offend me. Like, I'll I'll go someplace else. I'll take my business elsewhere. That's total consumer mentality. But we oftentimes do the same thing within the church. Someone steps on our toes. Someone hurts us, and we're like, I'm out of here. And that takes you to the next place where you go, and then someone steps on your toes there, and then you have the same thing. Mechanism kicks in again, you're like, oh, I'm gonna go someplace else. Before you know it, you've kind of actually burned through every church here on the central coast. Like, there's nowhere else to go. There is. You can begin to obey what God has said, which is to learn how to forgive. That brings you back into the cycle, back into the biblical working of community in your lives. It's painful. Talk more about that in a second. First Thessalonians 4:8. It says, Comfort one another. Ephesians 4:32, be kind to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5:11 build up one another Colossians 3:16 teach and admonish one another James 5:16 confess your sins to one another James 5:17 or 16 pray for one another do you know that one of the signs of true spiritual growth is not how much bible you memorize or how many good studies you've been in that's not real biblical growth true biblical growth is going to be measured by the level of how many people you are actually investing your life into. Think of it this way, because spiritual growth in a lot of ways is kind of like regular growth. If you look at a child who's maybe like nine months old, you expect a child to be needing its mom to feed. Now, maybe when the kid becomes, I don't even know how old, because I forget all this stuff, but let's just say like, I don't know, 18 months, they're like eating little Gerber food, and they get food all over themselves, and it's messy, and it's nasty. And, you know, mom and dad are like, oh, isn't that so cute? And everybody else is like, that's sick. How come someone can't clean up that kid? You know, but the reality is you look at that, and you're like, oh, it's just a kid. Now, let's just say you have a 20-year-old who's at Firestone eating, you know, a tri-tip sandwich. And he's got, like, barbecue sauce running down his shirt. And you might be, you might be tempted to immediately assume that yeah, maybe that's just a fraternity guy. That's, I don't know. The reality is most of us might be like, that's just not normal. Like There might not be something right functioning with that person to have as much nastiness off that person's face and shirt and all that. You might be assumed, quick to assume that maybe, maybe they're just not mature. Maybe there's something that's prohibiting them from growing up or being into full measure adults. But the reality is, is that as we grow, the more capacity we have as humans to be able to make decisions, to give advice rather than just be constantly in need of advice, same as the church. As you grow, as a Christian, you grow in such a way which you now can be in a position to give advice. That means to coach, to mentor, to love, to disciple, is what the Bible describes it as, to disciple other people. That's really a a measure of true spiritual growth. So you can be somebody that maybe has been a Christian for 25 years and still be an infant. And so what Paul's saying here throughout other passages Colossians three sixteen, teach and march one another. All of this is what I'm trying to point out. Takes place in the context of biblical community. All right. The second thing I'll take a look at here, real quickly, is that community groups actually form the context for which all of this works out. It's it's a, it's our strategy. In other words, this becomes our strategy. Really, what I want to emphasize here now is this concept: is that we have to think of a way. As a church, you know, living in 2013, to figure out how can we make this happen? How can we do this? Because if we are just like, all right, guys, everybody go figure it out. What happens is we get absorbed or consumed, eaten up by our schedules again. Right? So we have to be intentional. We have to have a strategy to figure out how to do this. So the way our church has tried to design, develop a way, a strategy to make this happen is through what we call community groups. Community groups can be called, you know, house churches, small groups, home Bible studies, whatever you want to call it. We just call them community groups, just the word that we use for them. And the idea behind them is that they are intentional. They're ways by which you can gather together. And we will actually be doing a training, as was mentioned earlier, um, this week. So I want to encourage you, if any of what I'm saying here right now has been speaking to you or causing you to think about something um, with regard to community groups, we'll be having a training this week. I'd encourage you to consider being a part of that, to getting trained. We'll provide everything that we have available to help you guys To get involved in this. If some of you have never done a community group before. Maybe you you would like to. What we'll do is we'll have coaches help guide you. To maybe get involved in a community group first. To see what it's like. To learn what it's like. We want to help you. We want to help equip you. Because really at the end of the day. The greatest need in our church today. Right now. Above and beyond everything else. And anything else. Is we don't need more money. We need more people. We need more people that would be willing to step up and say. I'll lead a community group. We have hundreds of people that meet here at our church every single week. It's practically impossible to see the hundreds and hundreds of people that call Calvary Slow their home, to see them become intimate and grow and become part of all the verses that we just described, outside of breaking them down into smaller groups. And what we see in the New Testament, that the church not only met in large groups in Acts chapter 246, day by day, attending the temple together, but then also breaking bread from house to house. So what we see in terms of the model in the early church is they met as large groups, gathering together, and oftentimes they would probably follow the pattern of the synagogue, which surprisingly would have someone teach, they would sing some songs, and then they would pray for one another and they would depart. So very similar to what we do here. Obviously, methodologically, very differently, in terms of the type of music you're going to play and so on and so forth. But the reality is they met together in large groups, but they also met together in small groups. From house to house, breaking bread, spending time with each other, loving each other, serving one another, learning how to forgive one another when someone stepped on another person's toes. That whole process was what was part of developing into disciples of God. This is what God was doing. This was the means by which God was using to bring transformation to life. So our strategy are what we describe as, like I said, is our community groups. So there's three things I want to finish up real quickly on here that you will need in order to really, I think, be prepared and be ready for this. So the first of which is that you will have to have intentionality. Meaning, you'll have to make this a priority. It'll have to be a priority. Look, the reality is, is that we will always make time for something that we consider a priority. If it's important to us, we make time for it. I mean I've talked to guys before that are like in their you know early 20s and they're like I'm so busy, swamped, they got school work, all these other things going on in my life. And then all of a sudden something changes for them. And what happens is they actually met a girl and now they're in love, right? So you're like I'm waiting for them to say that. And so what happens is that they've they're still busy, but they're busy because immediately everything shifted priority-wise in their life. Now, all the busyness that they're like, I don't have time for this and this and this. Now, everything has changed because they have fallen in love. Again, like I said, going back to the issue of has God lost his sense of awe to us? If we value God, if we see him as beautiful, if we're in awe of him, we want to be with him. And we want to be with his people. What we value, we will intentionally give ourselves to. Second thing is vulnerability. Vulnerability. We need to be willing to feel and sometimes perhaps even believe. And this is one of the things that we oftentimes despise. We don't want to become vulnerable. We're afraid of getting hurt. C.S. Lewis once wrote one of my favorite quotes. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, your heart will break, and your heart will be wrung and possibly even broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it in a safe and a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Look, this is scary. I realize. Some of us are like, I'll be found out. My sin, your ways will be found out. The funny thing is, is that to some degree, we, we like to give little snapshots of ourselves. That's one of the reasons why I think personally why Facebook such as is appeal to our generation. Because we can monitor, we can edit how much of ourselves gets out there, right? So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be quick to post stuff on there like, you know, I just ate cookies, you know, or I just saw a movie star, or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we're quick to just kind of give little snapshots, little trinkets, of ourselves, of our life, and we'll give it away. But but you will never read somebody right on there like, I just spent the last 45 minutes masturbating. Did he just say that word? Yeah. I just spent the last 10 minutes lusting after someone that's not my husband or my wife. We never put that stuff on there because that leads people to finding us out. But I'm telling you, that's the stuff that kills us. Isn't that right? That's the stuff that crushes us. So we need an atmosphere. We need a platform. We need a place to dump this stuff off at. And God, by gracious, loving design, has created what he calls the church, which is a new community, a family, that as we get together, we don't judge each other because we're all sinners that have all gone through bad things. We've all, to some degree, been infected by the disease of sin. And our hearts have begun to be disintegrated and broken as a result of it, and we all need to deliver. And so when you get a group of people gathered together that are just as jacked up as you are, and you realize that what we have is a savior, a deliverer, a God who loves us, who cares for us, who delivered us, a safe environment to be vulnerable. You can actually open your heart up to those people because you know it won't be crushed. Third final thing is we also need to be responsible. A lot of times we treat the church kind of like a uh, junior high prom date. Right? And girls are like, what? How do you do that? Okay, alright. Uh, I'll give you another analogy. Uh, we treat the church like a hotel room. Like We know we're not going to stay there very long. So, we just trash it. Or, here you go, a rental car, all right? Because we know there's no ownership involved in it. There's no reason to really be responsible over it, for it, because we're just going to give it back at some point. If you view the church as a rental car, there'll be no investment of your life. No responsibility given. If you view it as the most glorious institution that God himself birthed on planet Earth for the purpose of redeeming this lost, broken world to image, to reflect the greatness and the glory of God, that will change the way that you think about this thing we call the church. It will change the way that you view people's dysfunctionalities. It'll change the way that you tend to become so quick to judge and criticize and become self-righteous towards people that aren't like you. It will change you, but you have to be able to see the church for what it is. So here's the thing that I want to finish with. How do we do this? How does this change? How do we become intentional and vulnerable and responsible? How do we do this? Because we know really at the end of the day, we just can't snap our fingers and somehow make this happen. Because some of us might be like, I'm going to do it. He challenged me. I'm going to go do it. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll predict in some point, maybe 36 hours, you will fail and then you will feel full of despair. Or you will actually think you're doing it. You'll think you're like super vulnerable. You'll think you're super responsible. You'll think that you were all these things. And you'll become prideful and arrogant. You'll begin to look at all these people that aren't doing and aren't as devoted as you are. And you'll look down upon them with, with, with frustration and anger. In other words, undoing the very thing that God's trying to do. So how, how do we get our hearts there to do this? How, do, how does this happen? And this is what I want to finish up with this thought. Because the reality is, the story of the Bible is the story of a broken family. Check it out. It begins with Adam and Eve. They sin. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. I mean, we're talking, we're not even four chapters into the very book that we quote, and we talk about, and we read. Already just chapters into this book, and there's already a murder. Right? Cain kills his own brother, Abel. You're like, well, maybe that was just a freak accident in history. Well, it doesn't get any better from that point forward because what happens years later, Jacob ends up hating his brother Esau and ends up trying to betray him and take things from him. And Esau's out to kill his own brother. It gets even worse than that because later on there's a guy named Joseph, the, the, you know, the, the greatest, best, best son of his father. And what ends up happening, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. See, a family... A community has always been intended to be a place that provides safety and protection. It's one of the reasons why, in just sort of this natural, innate understanding of a sense of justice, if you have ever been brought up in a family, or you've known somebody brought up in a family where some form of sin has been done or, or committed, maybe some form of abuse, sexual, physical, verbal type of abuse has been done against you or a friend or a parent, instinctively you know that's not right. It's wrong should have never happened because instinctively you know communities, families are intended to be safe houses, places where you're accepted all the time, places where you can be free to sin, free to error, but also know that you'll be forgiven and be nursed back into wholeness again. And when houses and communities and families don't function that way, we realize the whole project is broken. And what we see throughout the storyline is that By the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes into this world, and he's with his own family, his own family. He comes into the family of humanity, becomes a Jew. Why? Because it's fulfilling a prophecy of being born in the family line, the community of David, in the community of the people of Israel, ultimately to the point where Jesus will be betrayed and murdered. By whom? By the very community he created. When Cain slayed Abel, there's a passage that God says, the voice of your brother has risen from the ground and speaks to me. That blood was shed innocently. What's amazing in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, says this, writing about Jesus, Jesus who is the mediator of a brand new covenant, he has his blood sprinkled. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here's what you have in the storyline of this big, huge project, this dysfunctional project called family on planet Earth. As, As broken as it is, God has come to restore it. How? By this family, this community of heaven coming into this broken family community of Earth and offering to us something free of charge to us, but of great, incredible cost to himself. That on the cross we're told that darkness covered the land. The father turned his face on his son. Jesus allowed the family project to do to him what it does to every one of us every day. It grinds us. It chews us up. It wounds us. It destroys us. It leaves us feeling vulnerable and broken. Jesus took all of it upon himself. So that you and I, who are in dysfunctionality, brokenness, sin, took it upon Himself to bring us into His family, which is one of glory, which is one of substance, which is one of forgiveness. This is the family that Jesus calls us into. This is what I want you to know. This is the gospel. This is the good news. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Jesus took upon himself the consequences of all of the things that you and I engage in on a daily level. Upon himself because he loves you. This is how he redeems us and rescues us. He took upon himself our sin so that we who are destroyed and broken by sin can be brought into a family. To the degree that you see that Jesus himself was intentional, he had a purpose, was vulnerable. That's why he became a man, took on a body so that it can bleed. God, by the way, the spirit has no possible way of bleeding unless he takes upon himself a body so that he could bleed. That he did all of this for you to the degree that you see that, that will begin to rewire your heart and change the way that you view other people. Change the way that you view community. Community groups. Involvement in other people's lives. In other words, it doesn't become something of a function that you've got to do because like, i got to be a good Christian, so i got to go show up at community group tonight. No, it's like, I want to. I want to be where God's at. I want to be a part of God's reflective work in this new world that God is building and creating and establishing until the day Jesus comes back. I've got a lot of work to do. There's a lot of relationships to be mended. There's a lot of things that need to be healed, a lot of dysfunctionality that needs to be gone through and sorted out in my life, but also in the lives of other people. God has enlisted and called me to be a part of his project of family building, community restoration. I hope you respond to that call today. We're going to finish. I'm going to have the team coming up. I'm going to close. We'll have communion in the back. invite you to partake of that. If you need to go pick up your kids, please feel free to go pick them up. You can bring them at, back in here if you like for some worship and some communion. There are things going on in your life right now that are just, you need prayer for them. I mean, you see things in your life and you just feel broken. You feel like God wants to heal you and restore you. We're going to have some people available right up by the cross. Some guys and gals are going to be available to pray for you. They, they, they love you guys. They want to devote themselves to you and pray for you and help you and if you need counsel they're happy to help set up times or do whatever but they're really there just to pray for you and love on you I want to invite you to worship this great big mighty awe-inspiring God and for maybe some of us he's not awe-inspiring maybe for some of us we got to confess that to him and say God I'm sorry I've lost sight of the awe of your beauty and I need to be reminded afresh of what you've done for me through Jesus on the cross I want to invite you to worship Him. There's some rugs in the front. If you'd like to come, just kneel down and get down before God. Just it's a way to kind of pull apart from others around you. Just kind of be with Jesus. But I want to invite you to just surrender your heart to this God who who loves you. And at great expense to Himself, paid a price you couldn't pay. Lived a life you failed to live. Took the condemnation and the judgment that you deserve to take. So that you wouldn't be an orphan. But that you'd have a family. a Father, forgiveness. The approval of a father. <laughs> this changes everything. For some of you, today is a day that God's changing your heart. I'm going to invite you to worship Him and love Him. Take communion. Confess your sin. Get prayed for. Let's sing.